Well, I hope you guys are doing good today. I'm happy to be here, happy to be with us. Um, I'm excited about this uh, series of messages that we're involved in, the kingdom of God called Kingdom Business, and we'll get, get, that, uh, get to that in a minute. I was sharing with some guys this morning, I had a, a, a chance encounter, I guess it wasn't chance, but you know, I went to the store, and um, it's interesting how uh, things are, have changed so much. We don't deal with cash very much anymore, you know, have you noticed that? There's so much online, and, and then I even found, I've, I've discovered Apple Pay, and I've always known about it, and I've had it, you know, like in my phone. There's, I guess there's a Google way to pay it, too, if you have an Android device, but you don't have to have your card with you. That makes it even worse, and then if you get a smartwatch, you can have it with you everywhere. I was at the uh, store, and the, the things that I bought, Cokes or whatever, were $9.52, so I gave the, uh, the person at the register $10.02. They didn't know what to do with it. They, were like, they looked at me and they said, you, it's, it's, it's only $9.52. I don't need the extra two cents that you just gave me. I was like, I, I, I want 50 cents back. I don't want 48 cents back. And they were like, but I don't understand. And so I had to teach them how to count change. Have you ever done that? So I feel now like a dad, really, because I was like, are you kidding me? Now I'm the generation that's saying, well, back in my day, <clears throat> back in my day, we used to count change back to people, you know. Um, they don't do that anymore, um, counting change. But, uh, you know, the, the new way of doing math is probably going to help us out at some point. We'll figure that out. But um, be careful if you, ha if you have that scenario come up. Just be ready to help them understand how to count the change back. Um, $10.02. But uh, having kids, man, having kids, every, I, I feel like for some reason, nothing in our society uses cash anymore except for the school. And the school needs cash daily. I don't know why, because we do pay taxes, but still, I have to give kids like $20 bill. It's like all the time, I need $20 for this and I need $20 for that. And uh, then we just had homecoming. Um, in fact, uh, Harvest, our school had homecoming and then uh, Geyer where Morgan goes, they had homecoming, and um, there's way more than $20, just so you know. And uh, <laughs> we did all that. There's, there's, I, who knew? There's like dresses involved and all this. When I was, as a guy growing up, we didn't have to worry about any of that. You know, we just got dressed and went to the whatever festivities. But anyway, things change. We grow up, turn into dads and stuff. This is really the worst. So <laughs> uh, anyway, we should get, get on with it, right? I really can't tell you how excited I am about, I know I say it all the time, whatever I guess the new season is that we're in, this, uh, this idea of the kingdom of God though, this kingdom of God, and I've, you have heard me, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me talk about it quite a bit actually, because the kingdom of God is so um, foundational to what we should be doing and who we are as Christians. And I was talking with somebody yesterday about the, this idea that, we can't change the macro. Um, that's not true. We can change the macro, but it starts with the micro. It starts with the small. It starts with, with your neighbor, and, and it goes from there. And so that's what the kingdom of God is, is bringing the kingdom, his kingdom, whatever that looks like, to our world. So uh, we've been going through that, and, and we talked about the idea. And by the way, the notes are in um, the church's app. If you want to go to the church app and, and look at today's notes, they'll all be there. The 
um, the scriptures and stuff that we use. But we, we talked about this idea that uh, the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven. And, and Jesus never talked about that. I'm going to catch us up for a minute. He never talked about the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven. But he did talk an awful lot about the kingdom of God. In fact, um, nearly every single time that he said, let me tell you the good news, it was followed by those words, the kingdom the good news of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So he was, he talked about that incessantly all the time, the kingdom of God. And he, the way he explained it is it's making up there, come down here. And that was in the Lord's prayer. That's one of the things that we learned. Um, God, let what happens up there happen down here. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever's happening in that realm that, that God exists, where everything that happens meets with his approval and his delight, that's what we want to happen here. And so he talked about that a lot, where people love each other, they welcome each other in, where the kingdom of God people, we are about the poor and we're about the marginalized and we're about the environment and we're about our neighbors. Um, we just want to love people. And Jesus is recruiting a group of people to help him in building this kingdom who care about his kingdom. And this group of people is called the church. If you go back to the Greek, and we've talked about that, the ecclesia, the, the gathering of people with a common purpose. We are the people that Jesus is recruiting. And he also talked about this idea that when people understand what the kingdom of God is and Many of us grew up thinking of the kingdom of God as a far off place that we go to when we die, if we have done all the right things on earth. That we, that's kind of the way we've thought about it. But um, Jesus, because he taught about it differently, um, when people understand what that is, they will be willing to do anything to be a part. Jesus said that if they figure this out, then it'll be like uh, the, the man who found a treasure in a field. And then he went and he buried that treasure in the field and sold everything he had to buy the field so he could have that treasure. In other words, it's worth everything he has for this piece of the kingdom of God. It's that important. And uh, then last week we talked about boundary markers. I don't know if you guys remember boundary markers that um, everybody has boundary markers. We in the church, we have boundary markers. We've we've established these markers to decide or determine how we can be set apart from the world. And really, I think as a church, as Christians, we do that sometimes to make us make ourselves feel better um, about ourselves because we're different from everybody else. And the rabbis did the same thing. They focused nearly everything about their teaching was on dietary law, Sabbath keeping, and circumcision. They talk about that over and over and over. And a lot of, in fact, most of Jesus' arguments with them or disagreements was in the realm of one of those three things. But really that's not what the law is. If you look in Leviticus and you look in Deuteronomy, it tells us that the important parts, and Jesus affirms this, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the heart of the law, not diet and Sabbath keeping and circumcision. But they set those things up as boundary markers to decide who's in and who's out, very much like bikers, and we talked about that last week, who they like black and they wear leather, right? Determines who's in and who's out. I was wa watching a guy, Caden and I were behind a, a guy on a Harley. I don't know what this guy does for a living. I don't know this guy from Adam, but he was wearing his leathers and went and Caden's like, man, that guy looks cool, dad. <laughs> so should I go, would it help if I bought some leathers and I was driving around in my car in the leathers, you know? <clears throat> Probably not. 
but we know by looking at that guy, he could walk into 7-Eleven and you're gonna like, oh, he's a biker, right? It's a boundary marker. We know who he is because of that. And that's what the rabbis did. So Jesus also set up boundary markers, but he said, hey, these are ones you can't see. These are markers of the heart. When someone loves God and they love people, then they're kingdom of God people. So what Jesus said, he called it a circumcision of the heart. It's nothing you can see. And we learn we don't have to try harder or run faster or do things to be a better Christian because there's nothing we can do in our behavior or our appearance to make us, to make Jesus love us more, to make him welcome us more. We can't do anything to make that happen. Jesus is like, uh, he taught us that, and this is me loosely translating, but there is, God is always at work. Last week we said, it's like he's singing a song. It's like there's this rhythm, there's this flow. And our job is to learn to harmonize with it. There's already a river of love flowing. That is God. And we try to set up our own river. We try to make the story about us, but really it's already been going. And God already has this river. So we've got to find the rhythm and the flow with God. He, he told the woman at the well, there's this spring that will give you eternal life. And God's spring is flowing all the time. We need to learn to hear his song, feel his rhythm and, and go with it. So the kingdom of God has nothing to do with being religious. All right, I came across a, an interview that Bono did and I've, I might've shown this here before if I have just you know, watch it again. It's pretty cool. So um, I came across this interview that Bono did in 2006. So it's a little bit old. He did it with Bill Heibel. And it has a lot to do with what we've been talking about. Um, you have to bear with me on the quality. Maybe it was old enough. I couldn't find a really great quality clip, but um, it has a lot to do with what we're talking about today, what it means to be God's people in a broken world. So let's watch that clip. You know, it's really, it's really a definition of who is your neighbor. Love thy neighbor is not advice. It's a command. And, and who is our neighbor in the global village? You know, can an accident of longitude and latitude um, really decide whether you live or whether you die? In the global community, in a globalized world, can you say, because that's happening over there, it's not really my concern. Well, why have we amounted all this wealth and power if we can't go to the aid of our sisters and brothers? Maybe that's the mark of our generation. And, and if the Christian church can lead that movement that can eradicate malaria within 10 years, absolutely doable, not even that expensive, that can um, uh, defeat a preventable, treatable disease like AIDS. By education, yes. By uh, prevention, yes. But when people are uh, infected by this virus, and remember, the single biggest group of people who, uh, who are newly infected are women and children. You, you asked, was there a moment for me? And I think there have been many moments. But one of them was a friend of mine uh, is a a very wise man, somebody I've grown up with, and uh, he just said to me, he said, stop asking God to bless what you're doing, Bono. Said, Find out what God is doing, because it's already blessed. 
And for what, for you, what was that? And that's this work. And um, we, we can be the instrument of God's grace. But it's not simply about charity, though charity is very important. It's going to be difficult things like justice, as I always mention Isaiah 58. And this generation could be remembered as the generation that put an end to what I call stupid poverty. There'll always be poverty, but the really stupid poverty where kids are dying for lack of foods in their, in their, food in their belly in the 21st century. We, can, we really can fix that. And we can't fix every problem, but the ones we can, we must. I read somewhere that when you say the Lord's Prayer, there's one phrase that really grips you. Which one is it? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is the, is the phrase that I use. And why? Language. Why does that one grab you? Because a lot of people are happy with pie in the sky when they die. But I don't think that is what um, is our purpose. Our purpose is to bring heaven to earth in, in the micro as well as the macro. In every detail um, of our lives, we should be trying to bring heaven to earth. Have the peace that passes understanding uh, at the center of yourself, but do not be at peace with the world, because the, the world is, is not a happy place for most people who are living in it. And, and the world is more malleable than you think. And, it, and uh, we can wrestle it from fools. Interesting. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we've been talking about. I mean, the very thing we've been talking about. To make up there come down here. It's the phrase he uses, it's more than pie in the sky when we die. I mean, I believe that. I don't think that at once upon a time, that's how I believed. I believed it was pie in the sky when I die, but... As I've, as I've read about and studied about Jesus and who he is and what he came to do, it's so much more than that. We're bringing God's will in every situation in our lives. That's what his desire, I mean, think about the implications of that. God's will in every situation in our lives. 1 John 4, 7 and 9 says this, Dear God, or dear God, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Um, John, or John Ortberg wrote a book and I'm going to read a piece of it right now. It's called Love Beyond Reason. And um, in it, he starts off with a, a picture of a... Um, of really what this love looks like. Her name was Pandy. She had lost a good deal of her hair. One of her arms was missing and generally speaking, she had had the stuffing knocked out of her. She was my sister Barbie's favorite doll. She hadn't always looked like this. She had been a personally selected Christmas gift by a cherished aunt who had traveled to a great department store in faraway Chicago to find her. Her face and hands were made of some kind of rubber or plastic so that they looked real, but her body was stuffed with rags to feel soft and squeezable like a real baby. When my aunt looked into the display window at Marshall Fields and found Pandy, she knew she had found something very good. 
When Pandy was a young, when Pandy was young and a looker, Barbie loved her. She loved her with a love that was too strong for Pandy's own good. When Barbie went to bed at night, Pandy lay next to her. When Barbie had lunch, Pandy ate beside her at the table. When Barbie could get away with it, Pandy took a bath with her. Barbie's love for that doll was, from Pandy's point of view, pretty nearly a fatal attraction. By the time I knew Pandy, she was not a particularly attractive doll. In fact, to tell you the truth, she was a mess. She was no longer a very valuable doll. I'm not sure we could have given her away. But for reasons no one could ever quite figure out, in a way that kids sometimes do, my sister loved that little rag doll. She loved her so strongly in the days of Pandy's raggedness as she ever had in her days of great beauty. Other dolls came and went. Pandy was family. Love Barbie, love her rag doll. It was a package deal. Once we took a vacation from our home in Rockford, Illinois to Canada. We had returned almost all the way home when we realized at the Illinois border that Pandy had not come back with us. She had remained behind at the hotel in Canada. No other option was thinkable. My father turned the car around and we drove from Illinois all the way back to Canada. We were a devoted family, not a particularly bright family perhaps, but devoted. We rushed into the hotel and checked with the desk in the lobby, no Pandy. We ran back up to the room, no Pandy. We ran downstairs and found the laundry room. Pandy was there, wrapped up in the sheets, about to be washed to death. The measure of my sister's love for that doll was that she would travel all the way to a distant country to save her. The years passed and my sister grew up. She outgrew Pandy. She traded her in for a boyfriend named Andy, <laughs> who oddly enough was even less attractive than Pandy. Pandy had not been much of a bargain for a long while. And by now, the only logical thing left to do was to toss her out. But this my mother could not bring herself to do. She held Pandy one last time, wrapped her with exquisite care and some tissue, placed her in a box, and stored her in the attic for 20 years. When I was growing up, I had all kinds of casual playthings and stuffed animals. My mother didn't save any of them, but she saved Pandy. <laughs> Want to guess why? When I was younger, I thought it was perhaps... My mother loved my little bratty sister more than she loved me. The nature of my sister's love is what made Pandy so valuable. Barbie loved that little doll with the kind of love that made the doll precious to anyone who loved Barbie. All those tears and hugs and secrets got mixed in with the rags somehow. If you love Barbie, you just naturally loved Pandy too. More years passed. My sister got married, not to Andy, and moved far away. She had three children, the last of whom was a little girl named Courtney who soon reached the age where she wanted a doll. No other option was thinkable. Barbie went back to Rockford, back to the attic, and dragged out the box. By this time, though, Pandy was more ragged than doll. So my sister took her to a doll hospital in California, there really is such a place, and had her go through reconstructive surgery. Pandy was given a facelift or liposuction or whatever it is they do to dolls, until after 30 years, Pandy became once again as beautiful on the outside as she had always been in the eyes of the one who loved her. I'm not sure she looked any better to Barbie, but now it was possible for others to see what Barbie had always seen in her. When Pandy was young, Barbie loved her. She celebrated her beauty. When Pandy was old and ragged, Barbie loved her still. Now she didn't simply love Pandy because Pandy was beautiful. She loved her with the kind of love that made Pandy beautiful. More years passed. My sister's next, or my sister's next will soon, nest will soon be emptied. Courtney is a teenager now preparing for young womanhood. Andy Jr. is already on the phone. And Pandy, P 
Pandy's getting ready for another box. John Ortberg, by the way, is that book, Love Beyond Reason. You know, there's a kind of love that's drawn to a person or object because they are attractive or because they are important or because they can give me status or because they can make me feel good. And we deal with this kind of love every day. It's shallow love. We all play the game. We're working hard to convince people that we're lovable. What we wear, what we drive, how much money we have, where we live, those are all the things that we do to make people love us. But then there's another kind of love. There's the kind of love that creates value in what is love. And that's real love. You know, we're all ragdolls. I would say to look around at everybody in this room, the person on your left and the person on your right, no matter how hard we try or how far we climb, we're a ragdoll. The reason we're ragdolls is because of sin. And, and no matter what we do, there's always that sin. There's something that just isn't right. Isaiah says it like this, 64, 6. We're all sin infected, sin contaminated. Our best efforts are greased stained rags. We dry up like autumn leaves, sin dried. We're blown off by the wind. Nothing we can do will help us escape this raggedness. But this real love that Jesus introduced us to when he came to teach us about this, the kingdom, this real kind of love is the kind of love that brings value to people. There's this place where people who get trashed on down here can be loved. It's a place where we bring up there, down here. 1 John 4.10 says, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You know, it's not amazing that we loved God. In fact, it's easy to love God because God loves us. And so we return that love, but that's not what God says. He says that we should love one another. You know, he reconstructs us and he takes our sin raggedness away. And he loves us. And it would make sense that we would love him back because it's easy to do that. But what he says is, because I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's his command. He doesn't say, because I have loved you, you should love me more. Because I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is the secret sauce of a Christian life. If you want to know what the secret sauce is, that's it. Because he loves me, it empowers me to love you. And listen, you're not always easy to love. I'm not always easy to love. But because he loves me, I love other people. That's why we can turn the other cheek. That's why we can go the extra mile, these other principles that Jesus taught. If we love God, we will love God's ragdolls. You can't love one without the other. If we want to break God's heart, then just go find somebody and don't love them. And you'll break his heart. Find a ragdoll and ignore them. John says it so strongly. He says, if, in fact, if we 
do not love, then you don't even know God. They say, do you know God? And you say, yeah. John says, not if you don't, if you don't love people, then you don't. All right, so this isn't all just uh, speculation on maybe this is something that would be a good thing. There was a place where this once happened. There was a place where they found the rag dolls and they took them in. Acts chapter 2 records it this way, the birth of the church. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles and all the believers lived in wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and they pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal, a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. And every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. So what about the rest of the story? Anybody remember Paul Harvey? The rest of the story. This is a story he might have told. And I've talked about this book before. Rodney Stark, he, he's a professor at Baylor right now. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And there's several things in his book that he speaks about that can really cause us to understand differently maybe what we understand or how we understand the rise of Christianity. All right, so when Jesus ascended, there were, by estimations that we read the scriptures, probably two to 3,000 people who followed him, who believed in Jesus. In the, in the Roman Empire. Now, understand the Roman Empire was a particularly brutal place. I mean, there was corruption in business. Uh, morality was at an all-time low. Divorce was so high that marriage was practically unheard of. Few children knew both parents. Few children saw their children grow into adulthood, so not a lot of grandparents around. Uh, abortion was one of the most, most common forms of birth control. And this left, especially in that time, uh, everybody or most people who had abortions were either infertile or dead afterwards. And then if you didn't want to have an abortion, you would, they, what they called selective infanticide. It's a sick practice, but they would have a baby they didn't want and they would just take the baby and go set it out in the woods somewhere to let it die. So they couldn't bring themselves to kill it because they didn't want it. They didn't have an abortion previous, so they just go and set it out and let it die. And Boys' lives were valued so much more than girls that most of the time it was the girls that they were taking out and leaving them to die. It caused problems because the girls became so outnumbered that they had to start getting married younger and younger and younger as early as 11 and 12 years old. They were getting married. Life expectancy in the Roman Empire was less than half of what it is today. Epidemics would wipe out half the population of a city and then the Roman Empire would come back and repopulate these cities with uh, slaves and refugees from other parts of the world or when they conquered another place, they would get the slaves and refugees and bring them in and then that caused all kinds of problems because different cultures were mingling. People didn't understand each other. They didn't understand the language. They didn't understand the culture. Now, during this time, Christians were actually allowed a lot of religious freedom. They, they were free to do a lot of things they wanted. That was until what we call Rome's 9-11. Everything changed in July 19th of AD 64. Everything changed. Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire, it burned. For 72 hours, it was out of control fire. And it almost went out. And then it burned for another 72 hours. 
And there were lots of rumors about what happened. There were rumors that some soldiers who were unhappy started the fire. There were rumors that Nero had started the fire, the emperor. He started to realize that his political base was eroding. So he said, he just blamed it on the Christians. But that was easy to do because nobody really understood the Christians. And there were all these rumors that floated around about them that they knew them to be cannibals because they ate and drank the flesh and blood of their leader, what we call communion. Um, because they thought they were sexually promiscuous because of the way they loved each other so much. It was an unusual kind of love. They said they were against family values because of the esteem, the loyalty that they had for their own leader, Jesus, God. So Nero said, hey, it wasn't me. It was the Christians. And so what did he do? He began to crucify them. He began to burn them. He would, and you guys maybe know some of the story, he, he would dip them in oil, set them on a stake, and light them on fire so that his pathway would be lit at the night. One of the more brutal practices, they would take the skin of a dead animal and sew it to them on their back and make them walk around until they died. Like just crazy, brutal. It, it, was, it was nuts what was going on. So what happened? The Christians decided to live revolutionary lives. They decided they weren't going to get divorced. They decided they would treat women with dignity and respect. And when a baby girl was born, they would celebrate just like when a baby boy was born because all life is sacred to God. And then they, they began to find out where the babies were being left that people didn't want. And they went and they would gather them up. And they would raise them. Something really interesting happened because after some time, if you wanted to get married, you were likely going through some Christian organization to find your wife because they had all the girls. Like they began to, and, and it began to, because of living this life of, of um, morality and love for each other, the tide began to turn and they began to have more influence. And when a plague would hit the city, they didn't leave the city. They actually stayed behind in the plague and they would nurse people back to health and they would take care of people and they love people. And then when all the slaves and the refugees would come into the town, they would stay and they would teach them the language and teach them the culture, teach everybody how to get along together. So back to Rodney Stark's book, there's a rumor, actually a lot of history says that Constantine you guys might remember Constantine. He got into a, a battle and he had put a cross on his shield and he won the battle, so he legalized Christianity. Rodney Stark says he doesn't believe that. And here's why. In AD, AD 40, this was around the year that Christ ascended into heaven for the sake of figuring, we're going to back the two to 3,000 number down to 1,000, which we know there were more than that, but let's just say 1,000. In AD 40, there were a thousand Christians in the Roman Empire. And I've got some numbers here for you. So that would be 0.00017%, right? There were 60 million people in the Roman Empire. So 17 one thousandth of 1% was Christian when Jesus went into heaven. Fast forward to about AD 200. Around 218,000 Christians were in the Roman Empire at that time, which is 36 one-hundredth of 1%. We're making room, right? Making headway. But this begins to catch on. 
And around 350, 33.9 million Christians are estimated to be in the Roman Empire at this time, which is over half. 56.5% of the Roman Empire had converted to Christianity. So Rodney Stark says it wasn't Constantine that changed the government. It was a revolution of love that changed the government. And here's how they did it. They didn't lobby. They didn't protest. They didn't get involved in politics. What they did was they brought up there down here. They lived such a radical life among people that others decided they would be willing to do anything to be a part of that life, even though for the first 350 years, Christianity was illegal. People liked what they saw. People want to be loved. They want to experience that. It, it had nothing to do with liberation theology. They didn't teach people how to get involved in politics to change the government. They loved their neighbor. When baby girls were left out in the woods, they would go collect them and raise them and love them. And when slaves and refugees came into a town, they would love them and teach them. And when a pandemic hit, they would nurse people back to health. And people were like, man, this is a whole different way of living. And I like it. And I want part of it. The cool thing is, that's what Jesus wants here. And that's also what happens up there. We're bringing his kingdom to this earth. So listen, we're going to, this is it, we're going to close it. I just want to remind you, there's two types of love. There's one kind of love that brings, uh, that finds value in things that are nice and shiny that looks to people's exterior. But there's another kind of love, a kind of love that loves ragdolls. It loves people like you and like me. And it makes up there come down here. Let me read this scripture as we close. 1 Peter 2, 9. This is how Peter describes us. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Live such good lives that when people look at you, they see God. Can we do that? I was talking to somebody yesterday and we were, got into a very serious political dis discussion and I said, this is the thing I love about the kingdom of God because it doesn't matter your politics or my politics. It really doesn't matter. What matters is that we all have the same politic in the kingdom of God, that we love him, that he loves us and we love others. And he teach, we become a conduit. Do you know how amazing that is? A conduit, something that his love passes through us to others. John Wesley called it a conduit of God's grace. Undeserved love and favor comes to us, but it doesn't stay with us.
it passes to other people. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes people want to fight you. Sometimes people cut you off in traffic. Sometimes people cuss at you. Sometimes people are mean to you. <laughs> Jesus doesn't allow room for us to fight back. He doesn't say, oh yeah, well, if they want to fight with you, go fight with them. He says, hey, if they want to fight with you, you go love them. It's revolutionary. And we have to understand that and grasp that word. It's revolutionary. Because it's not something this world is used to. Let's pray. God, man, I love you this morning and, and I'm, I'm so grateful for what you've done in my life. And I think that sometimes that makes it easier for me to to love others. Help me to love others even when it's hard. Thank you for helping me realize the grace that I've experienced in my life that makes it easier for me to love somebody else. So this week I pray that you would be with each one of us and not just be with us so we can have you and keep you like our own little stuffed animal, our own little object. Be with us so that we can love other people. May your grace flow freely through us to others, your love to other people. That's how we'll change the world. So this week, when somebody's mean to us, help us to be nice, to love them back. When we need to turn the other cheek, help us to do it. When somebody asks something, help us to walk the extra mile. Help us to be revolutionary and intentional about being revolutionary. And thank you, Jesus. We do love you. Thank you for loving us. In your name.